Open your Bibles to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Uh, We read it this morning as service began. Most of you will recognize it. The topic, mankind will once again wear the crown and be given dominion over God's creation. The title of our message, The Promised Crown Affair. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. I am the Dennis Agajanian of titles. But uh, (laughs) Father, we do thank you for your word. It's what can get between our soul and our spirit and reveal our true selves to us. It's where you can communicate the grace and love and mercy of Jesus Christ to us. It's a place, Lord, uh, that only you can get to. And I pray that if there's any non-believers here in this place, Lord, you would reveal yourself to them as well. Guide and direct us as we talk about this wonderful psalm. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. I didn't know there were so many spectacular theaters in America. You know how there are top 10 lists for everything online? And there's always a number one, even if it's just that person's personal choice. The closest I could get to a list of 10 was 24 theaters, and none of them were ranked because any one of them could be the number one. Kauffman Center in Kansas City, the Fox Theater in Detroit, the Shermerhorn Symphony Center in Nashville, the Walt Disney Concert Hall in L.A., the Orpheum Theater in Phoenix, just to name six on that list. Radio City Music Hall was on the list. They said of it, the theater is superlative in many ways. It is the largest indoor theater in the world, features the largest stage curtain in shimmering gold in the world. Many people also consider it to be one of the most perfectly equipped stages ever built. Radio City Music Hall is in Midtown Manhattan, in New York City, in New York County, in New York State, on the East Coast, in the United States, on the North American continent, in the Northern and Western hemispheres of Earth, the third planet in the solar system, in the Orion arm of the Milky Way galaxy, in the Virgo supercluster of galaxies, in the Laniakea supercluster of galaxies, in the universe. That's its address. So imagine you're in heaven and you're sta- or heaven is looking down at you and you are standing alone on that stage with no audience as I read Psalm 8, 3, and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? David wrote those words emphasizing his absolute wonder that God would be mindful of the human race and himself in particular. Poetically, he pictured God as pinpointing him from a position beyond this universe. David was outdoors in Israel, of course, not in a spectacular theater, but I suggest that it was no less a stage. The universe is the backdrop, the earth the stage upon which God's redemption of mankind is being providentially performed. Wherever you are standing, even though you are a tiny speck, God is mindful of you, so much so that he visits us. I'm going to organize my comments on Psalm 8 around two points. Number one, when God visited, his excellent name was proven in all the earth. And number two, when God visits, his excellent name will prevail in all the earth. Let's take a look at verses 1 and 2 at God's visit. Now, we're teaching selected psalms. One approach to selecting psalms to teach out of the Psalter is to make lists of various categories of the psalms. I became interested in two categories, especially messianic psalms and psalms that are quoted by Jesus. 
A messianic psalm can and often does relate to the immediate circumstances of its author, but it prophetically describes the coming of the Messiah in some way. As far as quotes, Jesus quoted from the book of Psalms at least 11 times more than he did any other Old Testament book. In terms of my category, Psalm 8's a double. It's both Messianic and Jesus quoted from it. One of those quotes comes from the Gospel of Matthew. On the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right on schedule as the prophesied Messiah, we read this in the Gospel of Matthew. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Jesus quoted this from verse 2 of Psalm 8. Reads a little differently in some of our translations, but it's definitely from that passage. Quoting it as he did about himself establishes that the psalm indeed is messianic, and he gives us a handle, you might say, for interpreting and applying the psalm. It spoke of something that would happen at his first coming, or let's call it his first visit. So let's get into it in verse 1. To the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Worship in the tabernacle had been structured and organized by David. There was no temple at that time. It would come to Solomon to build the temple. David delivered this psalm to one of his chief musicians, who we might call a producer, for lack of a better word. It was written to be played on the instrument of Gath. Now, some say that means a particular style of music, like we would say rock or reggae or R&B, uh, that the city of Gath had its own like musical preference. Others translate it Giddith and say that it's the name of an instrument associated with the city of Gath. Like we might associate what instrument with Hawaii? ukulele. So that's the same kind of a thing. So we just don't know whether it was an instrument or a style of music or a little bit of both. Oh Lord, he is the sovereign, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, omni, everything that is marvelous God. Our Lord is an expression uh, uh, that God, our Lord is an exclamation that God has made a covenant with Israel. Several actually involving their land, their continued existence, there being a blessing to all the other nations of the earth. And so the Lord is God above his creation, and he's specifically a covenant-making God to those who believe in him. His glory is above the heavens means, among other things, that he's outside of the universe as its eternally existing creator. How excellent is your name in all the earth both begins and ends the psalm. David was singing at a time of spiritual and material prosperity for Israel, and he gave testimony to the nations that God was indeed excellent. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Now, remember, this is poetry. It's not prose. And this is a poetic way of declaring that the weakness of God is more powerful than the strength of any enemy. The Apostle Paul put it in prose when he wrote in 1 Corinthians, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. David is extolling the power of God, saying he could and does accomplish his will using the weak things of the world. A fierce fell foe is no match for a nursing infant should God decide to get involved. So that's the idea. 
You'd read something like that and say, how, how can a nursing infant defeat an army that's come against us? And then you read the Bible and you see fantastic story after fantastic story of God using the weak things of the world to bring glory to himself. Jesus quoted this on Palm Sunday. In just a few days, it would be Good Friday. Jesus would submit himself to death on the cross. He'd be dead. He'd be entombed. Seemed an incredible failure, a flaw in God's plan, a failure to keep his promises. The uh, famous rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar, that none of us should ever see. <laughs> I wasn't a Christian, I don't think, when I saw it. Or if I was, I shouldn't have seen it. But anyway, it, uh, it, it deals with this kind of an idea that, that obviously the crucifixion of Jesus and his dying on the cross was a failure. He failed to accomplish his mission. It makes Judas kind of the hero, as a matter of fact, which is why we reject it. But that's, it's a common idea. If you kill somebody on the cross, uh, the mission seems over. But we know that that was the plan. The Lord was in command on the cross. He dismissed his own spirit. You know, every year around Easter, somebody teaches on the horrors of the cross in terms of the medical, uh, you know, what happens to your body if you're actually crucified. And uh, there's articles about that. I'd recommend you read them uh, on your own, but they're not for the squeamish. Uh, and yet Jesus, as you read through the account on the cross, though he suffered greatly, was in con command of everything that happened. So much so that at a time when uh, he should be weakening, he cried out with a loud voice for uh, his spirit to be taken by the Lord. That was God's plan. We read that Jesus disarmed principalities and powers, that he made a public spectacle of them. He triumphed over them in the cross. That's Colossians 2.15. God's name was never more excellent in all the earth than when Jesus defeated sin and Satan and death on our behalf, making the total redemption and recreation of creation both certain and imminent. We prefer strength. Strength in numbers, strength in finances, strength in resources, strength in everything. Uh, we're taught that way. You know, we, we, we want to know, you know if the bank has enough reserves to cover our measly savings account. You know, those kinds of things. We want big and giant and strong. Even though we read story after story about God being exalted in weakness, we still, even as Christians, prefer strength. We listen as God whittled down Gideon's army to a pitifully insignificant number, only to give him the victory so that God would get the glory. And we think that's great for Gideon. Give me more, not less, remains our mindset. Stories like Gideon's let us know that God can do great things. He can take your life and do what the world would see as great things but he's going to do it using your weakness, not your strength, because he needs to get the glory. But something I was thinking about, these stories that we read in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, about weakness and strength, they should remind us that God's power is available in what we would consider common things. And so we look at a Gideon, for example, or any of the judges' heroes for, you know, that come out to us, and they did these remarkable things, uh, nation-changing things, defeating God's enemies. And, and, and because they could do that, we ought to have the sense that we can do more common things. Doesn't that make sense? If, if I can defeat an army with God's help, can't I stay married with God's help? Can't I raise my children? 
Can I get along with people at work? Why am I so overwhelmed by everything that's happening in the world? When I, I believe and I understand that God's name is excellent in all the world and he can do great things through my weakness. And so I think sometimes we're waiting for, to do something great. And while we're waiting, great things are in front of us in terms of the commonplace things of life, living a life for Christ. If you're weak today, you should embrace it. You should endure it. You, do I dare say you can enjoy it? You are strong and that God's grace is always sufficient for you. You need to be that broken vessel that the light of the Lord shines through, that Gideon vessel. And, and believe, you know, I don't know what you're going through. All of us are going through something. Maybe most of your life is high right now. You're excited. Just wait. Tomorrow's coming. At some point, you're, you're going to be desperate. You're going to wonder if you're clinically depressed. Yield to the Holy Spirit who indwells you if you're a Christian. All the great things that he did in the Bible through common, ordinary people, he wants to do right where you're at today. And he can and he will if you'll let him. When God visits, his excellent name will prevail in all the earth. The Burbs. It will be remembered as Tom Hanks' most meaningful performance. <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't tell you that I love that movie. It's, uh, anyway, don't, don't disrespect me for it. It opens with you traveling from a vantage point in outer space to the earth, getting closer and closer and closer and closer until you're on the cul-de-sac where the dramedy will play out. I think the first Men in Black movie had something similar. Do you remember that? It was an a insect, right? A mosquito finally got splatted on a windshield, but he came through the heavens and got closer and closer to the location. So in Psalm 8, it's mankind that is pinpointed, David being our representative. And so it's as if God is looking down poetically from that vantage point and pinpointing David or human beings rather on the earth. And so he says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. One Bible puts it this way. It's probably not a great translation, but it's an interesting paraphrase. It says, your handmade sky jewelry, moon and stars mounted in their setting. Uh, I like that, the poetry of that. The universe God created can be thought of as a setting. It's a set for the earth upon which he created man in his image to love and fellowship with. What is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Son of man here refers to mankind, to human beings. In comparison to the very evident awesomeness of the creator, it's humbling to realize that he is supremely interested in us. He has a personal intimate concern for every human being. This is one of those mind-blowing psalms. It's a moment when you actually start to, to think about how big God is and how small you are and the fact that he would be interested in you or any of us is, is it, it's life-altering. Before Adam and Eve sinned, God had a personal intimate concern for them, obviously. He visited them every day. After their fall, his concern only deepened as he described how he would visit the human race in the future to save us and uh, all of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Having spent 230 days in space, NASA veteran Leroy Chow suggests it is arrogant 
for humans to think we are the only living beings in the cosmos. David was saying that it is arrogant to think we're not because that ignores the obvious. God created all this in order to visit with us. And so the skeptic says, look at all this, the universe, you know, and, and all the things that I mentioned, how arrogant to think that we're the only life form. And David would say just the opposite. How arrogant to think that we're not because it's all here so that God can visit us so that he can know us so that he can have fellowship with us. If, if it's not that way, if we're not unique in the universe, then it's all random and we become self-ruling, self-sufficient, and we say there is no God. And so, of course, that's prevalent today to just say that the universe is random. Uh, you know, whether it's the uh, multiverse of comic books and, and Marvel movies or something like that, we, we're being bombarded all the time into thinking there's alternate universe. There's another gene right through this portal who's living a different life, maybe a better life, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's all these, you know, into, I haven't seen this, but into the Spider-Verse, there's different versions of Spider-Man and, you know, all over the place. And so, and it detracts from the awesomeness of God in creating the universe so that he could have fellowship with us. We are what the universe is all about in that sense. For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Though not angels, though not on a par with them, God nevertheless entrusted humankind with his creation. We were crowned, as it were, to be its stewards. We read about it in Genesis. I'll read it. You're familiar with it, but it, it, it's very appropriate. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God assigned them. That's a joke that went over your head. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, Everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Wow, nice digs, animals subordinate, no global warming, visits from the Almighty. I got bit by my cat this morning, as a matter of fact. I've got, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine. Man, it would just... We have this crazy outdoor cat that we rescued and he doesn't get along with our indoor cats and he snuck in and I had to, had to I had to do it. But anyway, <laughs> bit me pretty hard. So definitely I, I have not subdued him. I am not, <laughs> he doesn't understand Genesis one, although I read it to him, but anyway. <laughs> now, before we go on, there is something I wanna pause to discuss. The word translated angels, interesting. It's the Hebrew word Elohim. Now, I thought Elohim was a name for God. So what gives? Well, here's a quote I ran across by a scholar that we would trust in this area. He says, the Elohim are beings who inhabit the spiritual realm. In that realm, there is hierarchy. Yahweh possesses superior attributes with respect to all Elohim, but God's attributes aren't what make him an Elohim since inferior beings are members of that same group. 
The Old Testament writers understood that Yahweh was an Elohim, but no other Elohim was Yahweh. He was and is and always will be species unique among all the residents of the spiritual world. Uh, this isn't the only place other heavenly beings are called Elohim either. Archangels, seraphim, cherubims, angels, Satan, principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness, all would be technically speaking Elohim. No illustration is really great, but maybe this will help. POTUS is said to be the most powerful person in the world. The president of the United States is a citizen of the United States, but not every citizen of the United States is the president of the United States. Understand? So that's the idea. Yahweh would be considered an Elohim in, in the sense that that's a name for supernatural beings who inhabit the spiritual realm, not necessarily a name for God. So why is this important enough to interrupt our study? First of all, we encounter the word here. Secondly, it's what the Bible teaches. Uh, third, it's necessary to know this in order to understand certain Bible passages we come across, such as Psalm 82, where we're going to read when we get there, God, Yahweh, Elohim stands in the divine assembly. He administers judgment in the midst of the gods, Elohim. And so it's a confusing passage, and it has all kinds of crazy interpretations unless you follow what the Bible teaches. All right, tuck all that away for right now. We'll pull it out when we get to Psalm 82. Meanwhile, in Psalm 8, verse 6, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field. The birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. Sounds like Genesis chapter 2. And in passing, I'd say that David was a young earth creationist. God gave this dominion to Adam and Eve and threw them to their descendants. Something is terribly wrong. On film, Aquaman can communicate with sea creatures. In real life, it's more like Jaws. <laughs> The birds of the air are somewhat terrifying in Hitchcock's The Birds. I saw a scene from that the other day and realized how it scared me when I was a kid. Gas stations blowing up, you know, and oh, nasty. We may have domesticated beasts like sheep and oxen to a certain extent, but if you want to see a bear go to town, watch that clip from The Revenant. Anybody seen that? The Revenant? I'm not recommending the movie. I don't, I'm not admitting I saw it. But uh, <laughs> after all, I'm a Christian, but... I seem to reference movies a lot. You know, I'm a, it's, a, it's kind of a hobby. I think I should see them so you don't have to. But anyway. <laughs> but there is a When I first saw that movie, there's a, those of you who have seen it, there's a bear attack in there. And I thought, how did, how did they get that bear to really kill that guy? I mean, that's just... You know, at the end, I expected it to say no human beings were hurt in the filming of this. It was awesome. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube along with advertisements from the 60s and every other useless information that the world has to offer. You ever notice that you can find anything on the internet? Who is sitting in their room going, I'm going to put a Malto meal ad from the 60s on YouTube. <laughs> and then you find it, I find it, and, uh, and you find that it has one million hits, you know? <laughs> Don't we have anything to do? When our first parents exercised their free will to sin, creation went into a free fall. Satan, the tempter, is now called the God of this world or of this age. God came to them in the garden. He promised our parents he would redeem mankind and creation. He promised Satan defeat and punishment. 
He did it by visiting us, by leaving heaven, coming to the pinpoint location of Bethlehem to be born a man. Talk about weakness. He was a babe, a nursing infant, as Joseph and Mary whisked him away to Egypt so that the powerful, bloodthirsty King Herod could not kill him. It's right out of Psalm 8. I'm not saying it was a prediction of that event, but when you're scratching your head thinking, how does a nursing infant defeat somebody who's powerful? Well, they defeated Herod by fleeing to Egypt. The strongest person on earth was a baby in God's providence. He won, but he waits. If you're here today and you're not in Christ, he's waiting for you. He's not willing for you to perish, but rather that you would repent and be saved. His long-suffering can't wait indefinitely. Jesus is going to visit us again. He'll come in the clouds to resurrect and rapture his church. He'll release the four horsemen to begin the seven-year great tribulation on the entire earth, the entire time still seeking men to save. He'll return in person to defeat his enemies. He'll rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years, and we will co-rule and co-reign with him. Dominion will be restored, and as I quote from Isaiah, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, a little child will lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Then what? Sometime this week, read the last three chapters of the Revelation. That's what. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Repetition. Some folks complain praise songs are too repetitive. Have you ever heard that? Hopefully you've never said that because now you're going to know I'm against you. (laughs) I hear that all the time from people, usually from folks who I love and respect, who are more used to a traditional, although, come on, praise songs have been around for I've been a Christian for going on 40 years. I mean, how far back do you have to go before you say it's not traditional? But some people, they just don't like praise songs and they say they're too repetitive. You can talk to David about that when you get to heaven because some of his songs were repetitive. Meantime, aren't most songs we listen to or sing by our favorite artists filled with repetition? Grand Funk Railroad may not be your favorite rock band. It should be, but it may not be. But you've probably heard, I'm your captain on the radio. It ends with Mark Farner singing, I'm getting closer to my home 19 times in four minutes. Even I can't listen to it all anymore, (laughs) as much as I love that band. I'm getting closer. Get home, please, get home. (laughs) They need to do a new version, you know, how they they update, you know, and and have these newer, they need to do one where he just, I made it home. All the world's a stage is from what? Elvis Presley. Well, (laughs) it's the beginning of his spoken word in Are You Lonesome Tonight? Remember these? He's saying, come on. Have you heard of, who's heard of Elvis? (laughs) I'm not that old. I'm, yeah, come. We had, when I was a kid, not that this means anything, we had every album of Elvis Presley. My mom was a big fan. We watched every movie of Elvis Presley. And you know what? He wasn't a bad actor for, in a couple of those movies. Most of them he was, but 
Uh, I think they filmed in like 37 minutes, even though they were 45 minutes long. But anyway, uh, and, and he said, are you lonesome? And then in the middle of it, he goes, uh, someone said all the world's a stage. And then he gives the soliloquy kind of a thing. So that's, uh, I only years later found out it was from Shakespeare. <laughs> so whether Shakespeare or the king, those are puny uses of the stage that David expounds. The earth, its history, is a stage by which God's romance of redemption is making its way providentially to the creation of a new earth and heavens. Any moment we might exit stage righteous in the rapture, don't be among those who exit stage left behind. 